Let's turn our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40. I'll be reading from verses 25 to 29. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 25 to 29. This is the word of God. To whom then will you compare me? that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, He increases strength. Good morning, everybody. Happy Fourth of July. Um, I hope uh, you were able to have a, a good weekend, maybe even a day off. Um, I think uh, for me, 4th of July is a a holiday that I always remember because, you know, who doesn't love a good fireworks show? And as a kid, that was something that I always looked forward to. That's something that's really unique, right? Right. All the other holidays, you always have like good food, you know, turkey, ham, whatever. Um, but you don't get the fireworks. And uh, I'd like to touch on a couple of issues that are related to, I guess you could say fireworks. Um, these issues are, are power and, and strength. And, uh, and I think fireworks, a lot of times when we look at them and we see them blown up, we're reminded um, of we're supposed to be reminded, at least, of the nation's wealth of power and strength. That's kind of why we have a fireworks display. It's kind of show you, oh, wow, look, you know, we have this, this uh, technology, and we're able to do this, and we have the wealth to just waste artillery and stuff like that. So as we um, think about Independence Day, as we're celebrating, finishing it off, that's what I want to talk about today is power and strength. Um, As you know, Independence Day is the day that we celebrate independence from the British Empire. Uh, This happened, uh, you know, July 4th, 1776. We declared ourselves an independent nation standing on its own. You know, this is kind of an interesting thing. Somehow, you know, when these these 13 small little colonies, uh, when they declared independence from the British Empire, somehow they felt... They were convinced in their mind that they had the power and the strength to stand up to the British Empire. At the time, 
you know, one of the superpowers of the world. <laughs> how are you going to, as 13 little colonies loosely associated with each other, how are you going to stand up to a Rome, uh, not a Roman, to a British Empire? And yet they believed that they had the power and strength to do so. Well, today, um, almost 250 years after that declaration, a lot of things about our country have changed. Uh, we've gone from 13 small colonies to 50 states, right? Um, we've gone, techno you know, technologically we've changed. We've gone from horses to steam engines to combustion engines to turbo, you know, rice rockets to spaceships, right? We've gone from all these different things that, that we used to rely on in the past, and now they've become obsolete, and now we have new te technology that we rely on now. Power, strength of technology. There are some things, however, that have not changed. One thing that hasn't changed is, so far at least, the freedom of religion here in our country. Another thing that hasn't changed, politicians fighting for power, right? That's something that has not changed. It's still the same now as it was back then. As long as there are nations to be ruled, guess what? There's going to be fighting amongst the politicians for power, for direction. They want to be the ones driving the country, right? And they're going to fight over that. So many monumental decisions, uh, you know, that will influence our nation's future, many monumental decisions that will influence the direction of our country in the coming years have been made in the last, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years, and uh, within, within even the last few weeks, right? Decisions that will affect the direction of our country. This party, that party, this contingent, that contingent, they all have their opinions. Everybody wants the power to rule. And, of course, we see this struggle for power, this struggle for strength, not just within American history, but we see it all throughout human history. We see it when human beings are struggling with gorillas and lions to survive. We see it um, in ancient civilizations. We see it today, this struggle for power and strength. So I thought it'd be a good opportunity to kind of take a look back into our history as we celebrate Independence Day and as we think about the direction, the future direction of our country. It'd be a good idea to look back into history, look at another nation that, just like now, they also had people who were fighting over control of the direction of their country. And hopefully, as we look back into history, we can learn something about the present and about the future. So to begin, let's look at verse 26 of our passage today. Verse 26. One of the things that, you know, that I always just loved about... Um, being able, you know, being privileged to read the Bible uh, was that as a young child, you, know, you tend to think in these absolutes, right? You tend to think in, in uh, black and white. And 
when I look at passages like this, um, it really appeals to that understanding of the world, that kind of like clear-cut understanding of the world, and how relieving and how nice is it to, to be able to do that, uh, especially as we grow up. And as we grow up, there are more and more gray areas to contend with, right? Um, so altogether, why don't we read verse 26? Ready? You guys have it in your pew Bibles? Verse 26. On the count of three. One, two, three. We see this verse where by his power, by his strength, God calls out the the, the starry host, the stars of the night, and he places them in the sky. Poetically, uh, it's, it's put that way. And it's by his power that he holds them there. This is an amazing thing to ponder. This shows us that God's power, God's strength, is very different from any other kind of power or strength in this universe. Whether we're talking about mechanical power and combustion engines, or whether we're talking about political power and who's going to you know, make the, uh, you know, who's going to win the election or who's going to do the, the coup to, to take over the throne, whether we're talking about the power of positive thinking, I can do this, I can do this, I'm going to make this happen, this, is, this uh, position, this job, it's going to be mine. All of that cannot hold a candle to the power of God that holds the stars in the sky. None of these can compare to the power of Christ Jesus. Amen? People are always searching for power and strength, and when people get some, if we're lucky, they'll use that power for good, right? We enjoy the rulers who use power for good. But when we're not so lucky, people have used power to accomplish some very evil, wicked things. And all you need to do is open up your history books, and I'm sure you can find incidents where people who had power used that power not for good, but to accomplish wicked, evil things. Uh, The 19th century poet Ralph Waldo Emerson put it this way, Don't trust children with edge tools. Great God, don't trust man with more power than he has until he has learned to use that little better. What a hell we should make of the world if we could do what we wanted. What a hell we should make of the world if people could do what we wanted. Sometimes when people receive power, they use that power and accomplish evil. On the other hand, as we see testified all throughout the Bible, God exercised his power to do something very different. God used his power to bring suffering upon himself. God used his power to bring suffering upon himself, and in doing so, he brought ultimate healing through Jesus 
to the broken in our messed up world. God used his power to bring suffering upon himself to bring healing through Jesus to the broken. I would say that that's a pretty good use of power. There's an event in history that dramatically illustrates how God's power is unique and superior to any other power in the universe. This event occurred about 850 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And uh, we actually have a record of this event that we can look at. It's in the book of 1 Kings chapter 18. If you have your pew Bibles, um, you can open up to page 300. At that time, just to give you a little historical background, the, the nation of Israel, like I alluded to earlier, it found itself divided, and there were people, factions, fighting for power. The reason for this is because their king, King Solomon, had just died, and now all these different figures were scrambling to take over, and in the process doing some very ruthless and murderous things. Many of the kings thought that they could gain power by following all the various gods, and in the process they hoped that these gods would give them favor and then they could like take over Israel. So in the process of doing that, they turned their backs on the God who saved them from slavery in Egypt. There was a God who did give them power, but they turned their backs on this God, this God whose name is I Am that I Am, this God whose name in Hebrew is Yahweh, this God who, uh, in English, we, we know as God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It was this God that they turned their back on in the process of trying to look for other gods and acquire the power that they thought these gods could promise. Well, one of these kings who did, uh, who did this, a foolish king, his name was Ahab, and he was actually a king, Scripture tells us, who more than any of the other kings before him led Israel down a path that deviated furthest from the ways of Yahweh. King Ahab had abandoned the commandments of Yahweh and instead he followed the commands of other gods, including Baal. Now Baal was a false god um, Historical and archaeological findings have found that what they believed Baal to be was the storm god, the god of the storms. He was the god of thunder, the god of lightning, the god of rain. Now, why is this important? Well, it's very important. It's hugely important because without rain, you have no water. And I think here in California, we understand that all too well, right? Some of you uh, who live in San Jose received a letter from the city saying, you need to curtail your usage of water by 30%. Rain is hugely important. Therefore, it stands to reason that if there's a God that you believe controls the rain, you're going to do everything you can to please that God. Well, at that time, they called that God Baal, the storm God. More rain means more crops. More crops more, means more wealth. More wealth means more power. So King Ahab made idols of Baal and he worshipped them, which of course was kind of a, 
of in, an in-your-face insult to Yahweh. Because this was a direct violation of the covenant that was made between Israel, the nation of Israel, and Yahweh. They had a covenant. They had a promise. Have you ever had a promise that you made with your friend and they, and they broke it? How did you feel? Not too good. Maybe you had a promise that your, your kids made to you and they failed that promise. How did you feel? Probably a little bit disappointed. How about when you were a kid and your parents promised to take you to you know, Great America or to Disneyland, but they never did? They broke that covenant, that promise. How did that feel? Not too good. It grieved your heart. Ahab led Israel down a path that was a direct contradiction to the relationship that Israel had with Yahweh. In response, what did Yahweh do? He sent one of his messengers, Elijah. He sent Elijah to tell King Ahab that there would be no rain. There would be not even a drop of dew in the entire land because of what? Because of his idolatrous, adulterous heart. Sure enough, the rain stopped falling. This, of course, didn't help King Ahab's popularity in the eyes of his people, right? If he's trying to become and hold on to his position as king, then this drought is not something that's going to help him hold on to that position. People are unhappy, and when people are unhappy, they're going to look to the king. So King Ahab is very, very upset because this threatens his position as king, this drought. But rather than go before Yahweh and admit his fault and say, Yahweh, I, I led this nation that you put me in charge of, I led our nation down a path that broke the covenant with you. And as king, I need to take full responsibility for that. Rather than doing that, instead, he got mad at God, he got mad at all of his servants, including Elijah. If you look at page 300, 1 Kings 18, I want you to look at verse, seven, uh, verse 17 and 18. Elijah is, is hiding because he's afraid for his life. But finally, God tells Elijah, now it's time to go face Ahab and, and tell him more stuff. And so Elijah comes out of hiding, reveals himself. And Ahab, King Ahab, it says, verse 17, when he saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? You are the one who's causing all this trouble in Israel. Elijah says, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord, Yahweh, and you have followed instead the Baals. That drought was Ahab's fault, but rather than examining himself, he blames Elijah, who may have been like, um, look, if you have a problem with how things are going in your land, maybe you should ask the king, and last time I checked, I'm not the king. You are. Ahab looks like a real fool to us, doesn't he? But to be fair, when things don't go the way that we want, 
how many times do we do the same thing that Ahab does? Point the finger, right? Like King Ahab, oftentimes when things don't go the way that we planned or the way that we wish or hope, rather than humbly going before God, asking him to reveal if maybe there's something inside us that needs examination and maybe needs to change, rather than do that, oftentimes, instead, the first reaction, our reflex is to accuse God, to go to God with shake, you know, shaking our fists at him, blaming him, blaming everybody else in the room, blaming everybody in the world. But all the while, in the midst of this blame fest, the thought never occurs to us that maybe, maybe I'm to blame. Maybe I'm to blame for how things are not going the way that I wish. It strikes us, it should strike us as a bit strange and ironic that even though we know what God wants for us, you know, we know it because it's recorded here, what he wants for us, yet we still spend so much energy resisting God We still spend so much time trying to argue God out of our life. We justify, we rationalize, and we tell God to stay out, stay out of certain areas of my life because we want to live our lives how we want. But then, as soon as the first thing goes wrong, We turn around and say to God, where are you? Where were you? Well, the answer is he's not there because we kicked him out. God, this is your fault. I thought you're a God of love. What is this? And God, throughout Scripture, this is nothing new for God. This happens to him all the time. And in Scripture, we, 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 we see this response or something like it. You kept me at arm's distance this whole time. You kept me out of your life, remember? So what's happening is a result of this God, godless environment that you chose. Over and over again, I sent people to remind you. Over and over again, I tried to remind you of our covenant. And over and over again, you resisted. And you said, I don't want to have anything to do with Yahweh. I gave you my thoughts, but you didn't think that they were good enough for your life. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. Isaiah 53, 6. So sure, we can look at Ahab and say he was a foolish king, and you'd be absolutely right. But let's not be so blind and think that he's the only only foolish king in the room. So even though the blame for the drought falls squarely on Ahab's shoulders, he still wants to blame God and Elijah. He wants the nation to follow Baal, not Yahweh. So, in the face of this hard-heartedness, Elijah challenges Ahab to a contest. Seeing Ahab just, he's... He's hell-bent, literally, on doing what he wants to do, following Baal, despite all the warnings, all the warnings that God has personally given Ahab. Ahab is still, no, 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 I'm going to stay on this path, following Baal, rejecting Yahweh. And so Elijah challenges Ahab to a contest. Or rather, 
Elijah's God challenges Ahab's God to a contest. Now, how would you like to see that? A contest between gods. We get excited and pay thousands of dollars to see a contest between men bouncing a rubber ball and throwing it in a metal hoop, which I, I love to do, by the way. <laughs> now, how much would you pay to see a contest between gods? Well, that's what we, uh, we see here today. Continuing, verse 19. After Ahab and Elijah, they have this little interchange, you know, exchange, and Elijah calls, uh, Ahab calls him troubler of Israel. And verse 19, now therefore, Elijah says this, now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, the 450 prophets of Baal, and also the 400 prophets of Asherah, another uh, false god, a false goddess. These are those who eat at Jezebel's table. Jezebel was the queen, Ahab's wife. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. Like I said, this is a historical event. Um, let's get the slides up there. And maybe you could turn that front light off. Thank you. So this is actually Mount Carmel in northern Israel. This is where the contest was to take place. This is where all the people of Israel gathered along with all the prophets of Baal and Asherah. Next slide. And if you were to climb up Mount Carmel, this is what you would see from up top. This is the view from Mount Carmel there in northern Israel. So they're gathered there at Mount Carmel. Elijah of 21, verse 21, Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you people go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then fine, follow him. That's kind of what he's saying. He's, he's trying to help Israel make up its mind. Remember, united nation right now. And so he's trying to unite Israel under their original God, Yahweh. And so he says, let's have a contest. Let's just settle this once and for all. I'm sick of this back and forth. People just kind of straddling the fence, not picking a side. Let's have a contest. And let's, whoever proves to be God, let's follow him. And I'll live and die by that contest. Elijah said to the people, I, even I, am left, only left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. So it's one against 450. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves. So he says, let's take two bulls, and I'm going to let your team, the 450 prophets of Baal, I'm going to let you guys choose the first bull. For what? Well, we're going to cut into pieces, lay it on the wood, but we're not going to put any fire to it. And I will prepare the other bowl, and I'll lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And then you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, Yahweh. And then the God who answers by fire and consumes that offering, that bull, well, the conclusion will be obvious. He is God. 
And all the people answered, it is well spoken. <laughs> I'm interested in this. What's going to happen? I like this. Right? Can you imagine, as one of the followers in Israel, your family line has worshipped Yahweh, but all of a sudden now your neighbors are worshipping Baal, and this is what you grew up in, and your king is telling you to worship Baal, but then you've heard from your parents or grandparents or whatever, or stories that, that were to have no other God but Yahweh. So it's confusing. This is, it's, a, it's an existence of confusion, and maybe this is how we're feeling today. How nice would it be if there were a contest like this to show you who's right and who's wrong? And so the people, in the midst of all this confusion, do I follow Baal? Do I follow Yahweh? I don't know. And then Elijah says, let's do this. And it will be obvious and clear. And Elijah and, and all the people go, oh, I like this. This is well spoken. I like this guy. Let's see what happens. Well, Verse 25, Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose your bull first. Now, if the contest is to ignite a bull, what kind of bull would you pick? You might pick the smallest one, right? It's easier to ignite something small, right? You might pick the bull that looks kind of fatty, right? Because then you got the natural oils to kind of ignite your fire. You're, you're going to leave the, the skinnier looking bull for Elijah, Right? So they get, I mean, Elijah gives them every advantage here. He says, go ahead, pick your bull. They prepare it first, and then call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. So they took the bull, they prepared it, they called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, six hours, seven hours, saying, oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud. Maybe, maybe he can't hear you. <laughs> this, is, this is Elijah's idea of trash talking. Okay, If he were like in the NBA. Maybe he's, he, he can't hear you. He's hard of hearing. Or maybe he's meditating. He's musing. Hmm. I wonder what kind of lightning I should make next year. Or maybe he's relieving himself. <laughs> this is like the equivalent, the ancient world's equivalent of a your mama joke. Your mama's so slow, right? That in the bathroom, blah, blah, blah. So she's, maybe your guy is relieving himself. Or maybe he's on a trip. Maybe he's, he's looking on Airbnb, looking for some place to, to rent. <laughs> or maybe he's asleep. Maybe he's just tired. Why would he be tired, though? I mean, there hasn't been any rain for three, day, three years, so, I mean, he hasn't been busy. But maybe he's asleep, and, and he needs to be awakened. He's completely mocking them. And so they cried aloud, and they cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances. Now they're desperate until the blood gushed out upon them. Kind of a slide. We really need a clicker. So, here they are, worshiping a false god. You can see that they have lances and knives, and they're cutting themselves, as is their custom. And now blood is gushing out, and they're hoping that this blood will catch Baal's attention. 
as midday passed, they raved on and on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. I know that for me, a lot of times when I pray and I call out to God, sometimes I feel like no one's listening. Sometimes I don't hear a voice. Sometimes I feel like no one's paying attention. And I wonder if maybe you've had that kind of experience too. And I'm not saying that this is the case all the time, but I think sometimes the reason for the silence is because we're not praying to Yahweh, we're praying to Baal. We're not praying to Yahweh out of a motivation for relationship with Yahweh. We're praying to Baal because I want to get rain so that I can get more crops, so that I can get more wealth, so that I can get what I want have the power to get what I want. Maybe our prayers, not all the time, but sometimes, are not being answered because we're praying not to Yahweh, but to Baal. It's a question that we should at least entertain seriously when we're praying and we're met with utter silence. Verse 30, then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me, come here. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took two, 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with these stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, Yahweh. Whenever you see that L-O-R-D with the capital O-R-D, there's actually uh, other times in the Bible where it's L lowercase O-R-D. This is capital O-R-D. That's when, you, that's when we replace that with Yahweh, his holy name, because uh, when they wrote it, when the scribes wrote it, his name was too holy to write. So they would just replace it with that little word, Lord. But really, what it, it's not Lord, it's Yahweh, his personal name. So he built this altar in the name of Yahweh, and he made a trench. Then he makes a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seas of seed, a pretty sizable trench all around the altar. Why? Hmm, we'll find out. And then he put the wood in order, and he cut, cut the bull in pieces, and he laid it on the wood, and he said... Now, this is something that's a complete surprise, a little twist. It's a little like in-your-face, Baal. He goes, I want you to fill four jars with water and pour it onto this burnt offering and on the wood. So he tells everybody, get four jars, pour it on the bowl, pour it on the wood. And he said, do it a second time for good measure. And they did it a second time. And I guess he's feeling kind of confident because he says, do it again, a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran down the altar. The bull is drenched. The wood is drenched. The stones are drenched. The trench is drenched. <laughs> Everything is saturated with water. Can you imagine as you're an Israelite there watching this, like, this guy's crazy. We just saw the prophets of Baal 
making clowns of themselves past like seven hours, even cutting themselves, what makes Elijah think that his God is going to answer, especially with water? It filled up the trench. Verse 36, at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Yahweh, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Israel, would you let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your command? Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Yahweh, are God, and that you have turned their heart back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, and the wood, and the stones, and the dust, (laughs) and it licked up the water that was in the trench. Slide. I wish I could do like sound effects, or maybe I can. I mean, if this were like a movie, they should make a movie out of this, right? (laughs) Sounds like a dentist uh, appointment, but anyway, I mean, how can we can't even imagine what that must have been like? There was a fire that came down from heaven and burnt up this drenched bull, not only that the wood, not only that all the water in the trench, but the stones and the dust, even the dust. How does dust burn? I don't know. You tell me. This is not a natural fire. This is a supernatural fire that can only come from a divine source. Amen? Even the stones and the dust burned up. I can guarantee you, if Baal sent fire, it may have burned the bowl. It would not have burned up the stone. God still would have won the contest. It's like a Baal doing a little layup in a slam dunk contest, and Yahweh coming in doing Vince Carter, East Bay Funk, Jason Richardson, you know, and then shooting a Steph Curry three just to injury. This is what God did with 12 jugs of water and this stone, and this dust. It all burned up. And when the people saw this, they fell on their faces, and they said, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. I would venture to guess that they were not saying, the Lord, he is God, like this. (laughs) That's pretty good. That's a pretty neat trick. The Lord, he is God. Okay, he wins. Right? No. <laughs> ah! Right? And they're on their faces, it says. They fell on their faces. And they said, Yahweh, the one who Elijah wore, he is God. And they're scared because they don't know if that fire is going to turn on them. Right? They're like, okay, okay, stop, stop. You're God. You won. You won. Stop. Uncle, I, uncle, I cry uncle. This is not just any ordinary contest. This is something that people have never seen. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down 
to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. I'm not going to get into necessarily that part. Maybe I will if I have time, but I doubt it. But this is how serious God takes his relationship with you and with us. That those who would obstinately, stubbornly try to stand between us and God and drive us away and, and, and trick us and deceive us with smooth words and promises away from a relationship with Yahweh. If Yahweh is life, then being anyone who drives us away from Yahweh should, should die. That's, that's the law. Baal is known as a god of the storm and lightning and rain. Yahweh, on the other hand, look how he calls Yahweh in verse 36. He doesn't call Yahweh the god of fire and lightning and storm. He says he calls God the god of Abraham, the god of Isaac, the god of Israel. Let it be known that your people. We see here a very interesting difference between the true one living God, and all those other pretenders. All those other pretenders, they're a God of like inanimate things, the God of lightning, the God of, God of thunder, the God of the seas, right? Neptune, the God of the skies, Zeus. But Yahweh is a God of Abraham. He's a God of people. God is a personal God. He's a God of Amy and James. He's a God of Jenny. He's a God of Jin and Elena. He's not the God of the rocks and the mountains. He's a God of Daniel and Anna and Everly. He's a God of Wesley and Norma. He's a God of Emmanuel. God is not, he is a God of fire and all of that, but he's not satisfied with that. He wants you. He wants a relationship with us. And that's why his, he, Elijah, his prophet, describes him that way. The God of what? Fire? No, the God of Abraham. The God of the oceans? No, the God of Israel. The God of San Jose New Hope, CRC. God is a personal God. And after this contest, and after Yahweh showed himself to be the one true and living God, do you know what happened? Rain fell. I want you to look at verse 17, uh, chapter 17 of 1 Kings. Look at chapter, uh, 1 Kings chapter 17, look at verse 1. This is before the contest. This is, this is how the drought began. Now Elijah the Tishbite, he, he's from Tishba, um, said to Ahab... Elijah says to King Ahab, quote, As the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. There will be a drought, there will be no rain, not even a drop of dew, unless Yahweh says so. And for three years it was so. And still Ahab did not listen. Three years! So stubborn, 
so stuck on his way. I don't want God's way. I want my way. Three years, seriously? Yes. (laughs) And then finally, God said, enough's enough. Ahab, it's fine if you want to go down your path. You're also leading my people down your path as well. Enough's enough. We're going to have a contest. I'm going to show you who is God. And he has this contest. The results are inarguable. And then the rain falls. Water. We need water so badly here in Santa Clara County. But Jesus says that even if you drink the water of this world, guess what? In a couple hours, you're going to be thirsty again. But the water that I offer you is the water of life. And if you drink it, you will never thirst again. When we understand and acknowledge and fall face down like the people and say, you are Yahweh, you are the one true and living God, the rain falls into our lives, the water of life that comes from Jesus. I'm going to conclude with the application. Application is always crucial because as we talked about today, power. Look, if we fail to apply God's word each week that we hear, we come here to hear God's word, right? That's one of the reasons why we come here. But if we just listen and then walk out the door and don't do anything about it and and the word of God never like penetrates into your heart, it's just like, oh, I listened. Ooh, that was kind of neat. It was kind of neat seeing Pastor Young go freaky today. Um, What's for lunch? If we never give this word that was preached here today about Yahweh, the living God, a second thought until the next Sunday, then what's the point, right? Now you're just going to hear another sermon next week given by Pastor Susang. And it's just going to go in one ear. Application is important. Why? Because when we fail to apply God's word, we're failing to allow God's power to work in us. And we all want God's power, don't we? Well, I'm telling you, as a pastor for 20 years, as a Christian for more, and I know that there are dozens of people here who would stand up and agree with me and say the same thing. If we don't apply God's word, then we are short-circuiting the power of God. We're not letting God's power work in through our lives. But when we do apply, that's, brothers and sisters, when we get to have some fun. And we get to see some amazing things happen in people's lives. Lives change, lives transform. You may have seen this on some retreats. You may have seen this at Bishop. You may have seen this at VBS. You may have seen this at the EM summer retreats. I hope this happens. I hope this happens at the EM summer retreat. That will give us something to Instagram. (laughs) Application. The reason I bring this up, we're having our small groups start the summer session. We've taken a break. Now we're starting again. Gospel Life Family. I wish I could spend, or I wish I could get you to spend with me just five minutes, each one of you, one-on-one, because here's what I would tell you. The Gospel Life family, these small groups, 
If you forget anything, everything about the small groups, I want you to remember this one, remember this one thing. The small groups are a place for you to apply the word of God that you hear. We hear the word of God here on Sunday in this large group, and then during the week, you gather in smaller groups so, you, so that you can talk and converse and have a conversation about the word of God that you heard, and then chew on it. Pretend your soul has teeth and you're chewing on it and you're sucking the juice out of God's word and, and God's word has a context for each one of you and you get it and then your mind just gets blown you're like, oh my goodness, thank you Lord that you, you know my life. This word of God that I didn't even think applied to me, it does apply. And now, because you've spent that time digesting God's word instead of just letting it go boom, 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 now, what do I do with this? That's what the small group is about. You go to the small group to chew with together, chew on the word of God that we heard here on Sunday, and then help each other do something about it. James 1.22 says, Be hearers of the word and doers, lest ye deceive yourself. If we only hear the word but don't do it, I've got news for you. God says you're lying to yourself. James 1.22, check it out. In James, you may also know the, the, the more famous passage, faith without deeds is dead. That's what the small groups are about, to apply the power that he gives us through the word, through the proclamation of the word, have that power do something in our hearts, and then move us and compel us into the world and, do, and, 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 and channel the, the power of God in, into our surroundings, into our neighbors, into our families, into our workplaces. That's what the small groups are about. So, I know that, you know, for some of, there's no way, easy way of, of organizing the small groups. Um, we, we sent out, you probably got an email. If not, you can ask me and I can send it out to you. We've organized the groups according to area. And now we're just like, okay, now that's like the starting point. Now move to where you need to go. If you can't do small group here, then do it here. If you can't do small group here, then go do it there. But do it somewhere. Because that's not the important thing. The important thing is not where you gather, not with whom you gather or with whom you're not gathering, or what day you're gathering. The important thing is what? That we're doing. That we hear the word of God and then we do the word of God. James 1.22. I want to just enter into a time of prayer. Uh, Joseph, you want to come up? Today, the word of God that we heard is this. God demonstrated his power to be superior to the power of all these other pretender gods. Sometimes a pretender god is us. Sometimes we're the ones that are on the throne of our lives. And God... He showed to the world that he was Yahweh, the true God, and nobody else. And this is what the people observed in verse 39 there. In the other passage, Isaiah 40, we read that God puts the stars in the night, in the night sky, and by his power and by his strength, he holds them there.
what I want us to maybe walk away with today is this. That great power that God uses to hold the stars in place, that great power that he did, that he, that he demonstrated on, on the altar there on Mount Carmel, God takes all that amazing power and he turns around and he packages all that power in his son, Jesus Christ, and he gifts that power to you. He takes all of that power, the power to hold the stars in the sky, and he packages it in Jesus, the Son of God, incarnate, human being, and he gifts that power to you. Isaiah 40, 29, he gives strength to the weary. He increases the power of the weak. Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. 2 Corinthians 12, But Jesus said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, Paul, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul says, Therefore, I'm going to boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why I delight in weaknesses, hardships. I delight in persecutions and difficulties, because when I am weak, then I am strong. I can experience the strength of God through Christ. You see, this story in 1 Kings 18 isn't just a little isolated incident. It's a narrative that runs through the entire Bible, about giving power, the, the, the God, Yahweh, the God of the universe, giving his power to us, the weak. Maybe you're going through a season in your life where uh, you just had a tough go. Maybe you feel like there's no time to rest, no time to breathe. Maybe you're just really worn down. Or maybe you've been beaten up by life and relationships. <laughs> and maybe right now you're feeling empty and broken. Maybe feeling numb. Because you'd rather feel numb than feel all the other emotions that you're afraid of feeling. If so, I want to share something good with you. Lift up your eyes. Look to the heavens. Who created these? He who brings out the starry host one by one calls them forth each one by one. Because of his great power and his mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Do you not know, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, Yahweh. He is a creator. He will not grow tired. He will not grow weary. His understanding no one can understand. He gives strength to the weary and he increases the power of the weak. Those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength and they will soar on wings like eagles. They will run. They will not grow weary. They will walk. They will not be faint. I hope that you can learn from King Ahab, not be foolish and reject this great generous power of God that he put in Jesus Christ, his son. And instead, I hope that we can all accept that Yahweh, he alone, is God. And before God, let him give us his power in Christ. And let us give him 
in exchange are our moral incompetence, our moral impotence. And you will receive God's one-of-a-kind power and strength in Christ. It is now uh, my honor